Hey, this is Camille from Remodel Your Life. I wanted to tell you about an awesome brand that I recently discovered that I think you might love too. Have you ever spent a ton of money on clothing that was supposed to be high performance only to find out that it doesn't fit your body right? I absolutely hate when this happens. So I was so happy to discover Athena Outfitters and they is a game changer for me. They have a quality workwear brand that they source from all around the world. All of their items are handpicked to meet the needs of women in the trade specifically, not just sized down versions of items designed by men. They've got great workwear essentials, plus some other super cute other clothing for me to wear when I get off from a job site. Shopping with Athena Outfitters saves me time and energy because I always know I'm getting such a great quality that's going to fit my body correctly. So next time you're looking for gear with grit, check out athenaoutfitters.com. And if you're looking for a great holiday gift for yourself or a hardworking woman in your life, use my code RYL15 to save 15% off anything they sell. All right, so that's athenaoutfitters.com. Use the code RYL15 to save 15% today and go check them out. I think you're going to really love them. So let's get on with the show. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me on the show again. I've got an incredible woman who was a chemist who is now a furniture maker. Um, Kelly, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, I've got a ton of questions for you. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. Really excited to be here. Good. So before we jump in, I sometimes I like to do a couple of kind of rapid fire questions just for us to kind of get to know you a little bit. Um, You're out in Missouri. I'm in California. Um, So I'm going to go through five kind of fun questions and just sort of say what pops up, right? So what did you have for breakfast today? And or what is your favorite breakfast? (laughs) Um, This morning was the hungry woman's breakfast, which is two fried eggs and fried potatoes. Mm, Lovely. Mm. Nice. Okay. What's your favorite cocktail if you have one? Oh, um, I sort of like amber liquors. So anything Mm. with bourbon. um, I like an old fashioned. Mm -hmm. I like a Manhattan. Nice. Kind of my go-to is a glass of red at the end of the day. Love it. Love it. Love all of it. Okay. What's the one thing you can't live without? Oh, okay. So I am totally hooked on my dovetail work pants. Do you know them? Yes, I do. Oh my gosh. Like all of the functional pockets means Mm -hmm. I don't have to wear a shop apron. And it means that my rule is where I want it. My tape measure is where I want it. My knife is where I want it. I don't have to go searching my entire shop for those things I would have if I were just wearing my apron. So my dovetail pants cannot live without them. I love that. When I was uh, a carpenter in the union, I, they used to make, they didn't have the same stuff back then, but they had the Carhartt's carpenter version with the little apron on the front. Oh my God. I love those carpenter pants <laughs> because it was basically the same thing. I basically had everything I had just yep. in the front of my Carhartt's. Oh, it was awesome. So, um, okay. Number five, um, what's your favorite animal? Um, so not really an animal, I guess it's an insect. Um, Mm. I'm kind of drawn to dragonflies. Um, they're fierce. They go through this amazing transformation during their life cycle. They're of the air and of the water, um, symbol of good luck. It's sort of my logo. And I have a ginormous dragonfly tattoo on my back. 
Oh, so really? I'm kind of oh, committed, okay. yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I love that. Well, I love hummingbirds for kind of the same. Oh, point. yep. Beautiful yep. and fierce and tiny, and they're like little hover jets. So, exactly. um, okay. And then number five, what did you want to be when you uh, when you wanted to, to when you were little? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? So there were two things. I wanted to be a pilot because my dad was a pilot. And the other thing was I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Wow. Oh. So you, I love it. <laughs> Nothing was holding you back. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, no, Future Maker was not on my radar. Was not on your radar. No. Okay. No. So take us kind of back to the beginning. You were a chemist. So kind of you know, describe that. I think you did that for over, you know, around 18 years. That's a really long career. So kind of describe that journey and then sort of how you transitioned from that to being a furniture maker, which you've done for like another 10 years. Yeah. So chemistry, I was always a total science geek in high school. I took every science class there was. So there's sort of no, um, I always had this expectation that I would be some sort of scientist. So I did the whole chemistry thing, um, which also happens to be a very male dominated field. So I sort of got used to often being the only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had always been drawn to sort of guy things and I never let my gender stop what I did for fun. Um, but while I was being a chemist, I had like these random little things in my life that sort of pushed me out of the comfort of the corporate safety net to become a furniture maker. It's the most random decision I'd ever made. I'd never made a single piece of furniture in my life, um, but I sort of just ran for the cliff and dove off and decided I probably ought to educate myself a bit and ended up taking design and technique classes at a couple of schools around the U.S. And um, I didn't know that what I did, sculptural furniture, was a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's what I do. I don't do right angles. Everything is curvy. I've got a very curvy contemporary aesthetic. And I have found my thing. Hmm. So, so let's go back to the schools a little bit and expand on that because I know, you know, for me, when I was trying to figure out to be a carpenter and make that transition for myself, it was often hard to find training. Uh, this is pre pre internet, right? There was no way to just search for stuff easily. Um, so how did you, you know, what, what schools did you go to relatively? How much did they cost? So people have a general idea if they want to get into something, right? Yeah. And and what do you think you learned from them or, you know, that kind of thing? So uh, I, I, I looked at schools all over the country. I'm, I'm married. I have a house. So I've kind of like, I'm not quite as free to roam as a a young single person would be. Um, I looked at the Krenov school um, and I think as an out of stater, that was going to run me about $9,000. I think if memory serves, it was like 10 years ago, but I think it was going to run me about $9,000 to go through their course. Um, plus I'd have to move there. I'd have to have lodging, yada, 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 yada. And not to mention I had a husband here in Kansas city. So what I ended up doing is I took a lot of coursework at the Mark Adams School of Woodworking. So these are one and two week courses on design and various techniques. And then I've taken a couple of courses at the Anderson Ranch Art Center in Colorado. And so those things sort of were foundational for me. It wasn't an official furniture program, but it gave me the things I needed to go home and sort of start tinkering and sort of come up with an aesthetic that 
is kind of where I am today. And I would say that, you know, over all of the classes that I took at Mark Adams probably have cost me more than the um, Krenov thing would have, but it was sort of spread out over time and I could still maintain my married life and all of that. Right. Yeah. So were you able to go for say a week and really get like, what's an example of a class that someone could learn at the Mark Adams school, like how to do dovetails, um, like give us kind of a range of things that they, that might be taught there. So joinery is a one week class and it's all mostly hand cut uh, joinery. I did a week on finishing. I did a week on design. I did a week on chair making. I've done a couple of two week apprenticeships um, with folks and that's a bit of a deeper dive. So you're learning techniques, but you're also sort of designing your project and sort of getting that um, up and running. And then also, I, I have done two internships. I did an internship here in Kansas City with a, um, probably the best maker in town, David Polivka. And then I followed that up with an internship with Michael Fortune in Canada. And both of those internships were really impactful for me because I sort of learn best when I'm sort of immersed completely. And right. so I got to work in these two functioning shops making completely different styles of furniture. Mm-hmm. They were really important to me and my career development. And so can you, let's do like a deeper dive on that. Like, how does that work? How did you apply? Did you, are you applying for those internships? How did you learn about them? Um, you know, are they paid unpaid? How long did they last? How, you know, where did you live? Like the logistics of it. Sure. So the one in Canada was probably the one most impactful for me because that's the one that really has impacted how I work. So like I said, I do a lot of uh, bent wood techniques and uh, Michael Fortune is known for that. So those techniques I learned from him. So he knew me because I had taken classes from him before. And so it was more of a casual, hey, you ought to think about doing an internship. Mm -hmm. And just over the course of years, we sort of corresponded until it happened. Um, and so I did, a, I did two months there. And so half, half of the week, I would work on his work and half of the week, I would work on my work sort of under his guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, it was unpaid. Um, Where did you live then if it was in Canada? I mean, you, I assume you moved, you lived there for two months. I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, they have an a intern studio. So oh, I they do. there on okay. their property. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So some of these places sort of, they make it, I mean, you're not getting paid. So if you had had a job, you're, you have to kind of suck that part up, but at least you're not also having to pay for lodging and the rest of it. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the one that I did here in Kansas city, it was just like going to a job every day, um, working on David's work. And then I I got to work on my projects sort of after hours. Hmm. And how long was the one with David? The one with David, I think was three or four months. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. what do you think you learned from that, that internship? Well, so I, was, so I did David's first and then I did Michael's and I was sort of terrified to go to Michael's, honestly, mm-hmm. um, because of the caliber of woodworker he was. Yeah. So what I feel like I got at David's was um, confidence on really big tools. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and like, I'm a tool girl. There is not a thing I'm afraid to run. But oh, I love I, that. <laughs> not wrong, like these huge joiners and this ginormous radial arms are whatever. Right. So I just got a lot of confidence for working in a shop and working around other people. 
Yeah. Um, and then just, you know, seeing how David approached client meetings and how he did his drawings and cut lists, mm. and that kind of stuff. So let's dive into that a little bit. Like, how does he work with clients? Not giving any insider secrets, but just like, you know, a lot of women, people struggle with when you have a woodworking business, like selling yourself, right? Meeting with clients, um, asking for money, right? Yeah. Doing bigger jobs, right? That aren't just a couple hundred dollars, right? Um, selling a $10,000 table, right? Like that's, there's a lot of mindset jumps that you have to there, do to yeah, pull that there, off. So how did you see him? What What could you share that you think he did really well that might help somebody that's hasn't sold their first thing yet or worked with clients on that scale? Well, so David had enough years in the business that he kind of knew what his costs were. So I feel like he had a lot of confidence in asking for a price. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and then he had a lot of repeat clients. Um, and it, it is hard to ask for the price of a thing, especially when you're doing a one-off and there's not a right angle on it. Um, there's a lot of labor in that. And I mean, the material almost becomes secondary. It's, mm -hmm. it's so insignificant in the overall cost of the thing. Right. Um, so, yeah, so he just, he had drawings and he, he always had a really good relationship with his clients. And I think he liked his clients coming into the space to kind of see their work in progress. Um, and I also like that. I want the client to be really excited about what I'm doing. So, I'm always posting pictures in process shots on my social media so that they can get excited about the project like I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you're both, it sounds like he's creating an experience. It's more than just the piece of material or, or furniture, right? It's you're selling an experience as a client. Yeah. that you're investing in something and then you get to watch this thing kind of come to life. Yeah. And so that's basically what he's doing is using that as an experience for marketing to get people emotionally attached to the product and just really, it makes the the experience much bigger than just a piece of furniture that gets delivered. Right. Um, so what, how many pieces a month do you think you worked on at, at David's shop? Oh gosh, his stuff, I mean, furniture doesn't happen in weeks. <laughs> well, many, many weeks. Um, yeah. Furniture is really a big investment for me. It's usually months that I'm working on a piece. Mm -hmm. um, I did a set of chairs for him. That was another thing. Hmm. When I first set of chairs, that gave me a lot of confidence. Right. Um, but yeah, we probably had, I don't know, half a dozen pieces a month that we were working on. So there were two of us interns and then David of course was making. So we had, we had a lot of diverse um, products going through the shop at any one time. Hmm. So, so chairs, tables, kind of more unusual pieces too. Um, he did an entrance door. That was, I don't know that that's very unusual, but, but pretty typical stuff that you're going to find in a residence or say a country club. He did, he did a lot of, um, some commercial work as well. Mm -hmm. hmm. Interesting. So it sounds like those internships, you kind of pieced together the schooling with where you were, where, you know, when you were ready to move up a little bit and push yourself, you took another class and then kind of went back and applied it on your own projects. Right. And yeah. then the internships really gave you that um, internal confidence and, you know, enough for you to feel comfortable. How long did it take you after 
say, working with uh, Michael Fortune to, you know, consider like selling your own first thing, right? Like walk me through sort of that process when you were like, oh, wow, I'm going to actually like make this a business now and tell people that I can make a piece of furniture and the very first thing like you made for a client. Yeah. Wow. What would that have been? Um, so I have a client who's been really, really supportive of me. And I think I got this client from my Sawyer. Um, and so Ben is like the best client. He lets me do what I'm good at. I feel like my, I feel like I'm a really strong designer and it sounds kind of snotty, but I really don't want the client telling me what to do. Um, I feel like they're coming to me for my expertise, right? And so they say, I have this need. It's like, let me fill that need for you. So I'll go draw, I'll make models or whatever, and I'll do my client presentation. And um, uh, Ben has always just let me do my thing. He says, I want an eight-sided box or I want a pyramid. And he just lets me go do my thing. Mm. Um, so working with him and him giving me the freedom and not really pushing me for a timeline right. has been really good for me because it lets me be as creative as I can be and not feel like I have to put any limitations on myself. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, well, it, it sounds like you really enjoy the artistic process and you really want to be able to be an artist, right. And, and really kind of fully get into that. Um, so you mentioned your boxes, which you're kind of known for, right? Um, how did you come up with that original concept? Like, where did you think, wow, I can, you know, this is a really unusual thing to sell, right? To make and sell. So how did you originally come up with those, those, that concept? So boxes for me started out sort of as an experiment. It's like, oh, I want to learn how to do this type of journey. I'll make a box. So, cause a box is a really small contained project. So they really started out as a way for me to teach myself a specific thing. But now, like to me, I don't even use the word box anymore. Because you say box, what do you think? You think four square sides, a right. width, a bottom. I don't do boxes. My recent work, I call them vessels. I feel like it's a much more um, sort of open term. Um I, I don't do square anymore. And because of Ben, he's given me the freedom to sort of push the boundary of what, how do I even define box? Does it even need to contain something? And for him, it doesn't. For him, they're just something, he just wants something beautiful. It's not necessarily going to be used. And I have actually taught a vessel design class. And that's one of the first things I ask the students. It's like, what does this thing have to do? Does it have to have a function? And when it doesn't have to have a function, then you approach it as sculpture. Right. That's what I was going to say is some yeah. of your stuff actually looks like wood sculpture, except you can't really tell it's wood. <laughs> yeah, that, that's how I start. Any project, yeah. whether it's a vessel or a piece of furniture, I start, I think, as a sculptor does. I want to create this beautiful form. And right. once I have a form, then I do the problem solving. And, well, how do I make this thing? So then my brain flips to the technical side of, okay, this is what I've designed. Now, how can I pull this off? How do I make this thing? Yeah, I really love your, um, obviously, we'll put pictures, you know, att attached to this so people can see your stuff. 
Um, one of my favorite, well, I have a lot of your stuff that I, that I really love. Um, but I think one of the most unique ones that I've seen was your, your pyramid one, right. That, um, you're famous for that was in the fine, you know, home building, um, or w- fine woodworking magazine Yeah, where yeah. it's the little, you know, they're little they're It's like a jewelry box that looks like a pyramid. It's so ingenious. And the design is so sleek and beautiful and pretty and yet so function. It's so interesting. I mean, I just love that uh, piece. So how well, did you, you, how long did it take you to make that? First of all, well, that it, probably six weeks I would oh, get. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's a lot faster than I thought, actually. That's pretty, uh, yeah. It's very pretty. Is What's the, um, is it like a burl wood? What's it, it made of? It is a burl, yeah. Um, so it's wood that um, Ben gave me. He mm. bought a couple of huge burls from a veneer mill that had gone out of business, and he gave me that wood, and, you know, and that's what I've been using for him. I think it's a redwood burl. Wow. It's, it's stunning. It's really, really pretty. Um, How did it end up in the magazine? Did you submit it? Did you submit pictures to that? Um, Actually, I have submitted photos to them before, but I think this one, I actually, I think I sent photos to Michael Fortune who showed it to one of the editors and that editor got in touch with me and said, Hey, would you be interested in having this in the magazine? It's like, well, yes, I would. So then I did, I went through the submission process where you fill out their form, you know, what the material is and yada, yada. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, And so how do you sell those right now? Where do you sell those little boxes? Well, they're not that little, but I mean, it's, you know, they're all different sizes, but how do you, do people just commission a piece or do you ever make a few of them and, and put them in stores or do you sell them through your, you know, through your website? So I do mostly private commission. Um, So all of my, all of my more adventurous boxes have been private commissions. Um, I typically am just doing that one box for that one person. Um, I just did a box that has a steam bent body and I bent two just in case one of them failed. They both worked fine. So I actually had an extra, but typically I'm doing a commission for a specific client. I don't typically make things um, because they're pretty pricey. And then once you add the markup for a retail shop, they kind of get astronomical. Right. Um, But, but I want that relationship with a client. I don't want that intermediary to be in there. Um, you know, the retailer or a gallery owner, I want to be talking with the client and because I'm passionate about what, what I do and I want them to be excited about the project. So to me, that's a really important part of this is me getting to geek out on the project with them. Mm-hmm. And so how, um, so you, you mentioned that you, that you really love the process and the story that goes into it kind of walk us through how you maybe build a chair or something from scratch, right? Like what's your process of doing that and how is the client involved in that process? So a lot of times I'm starting with a tree um, and I'll get that tree milled and I'll make something for the client out of this tree that they've given me. And um a, f- a friend gave me uh, some sycamore trees that his grandparents had planted. And when he bought their property, he had to take those trees down because he was expanding their vineyard that they had also planted. And so I made things out of that tree for him and his mom. 
um, so that they would have something sort of in their family to remember. So I, I feel like the story that is attached to the wood that I use is really important. And I write the story for every piece that I make. Um, oh, interesting. We have, we have enough crap. We don't really need another side table. But if you know the backstory of that tree and where it came from, it's like, oh, that's off of the Thomas Hart Benton property. That's a pretty cool thing. And so now it's not just a random box or side table. There's a story and this life attached to it. Um, and so to me, that it, that story sort of propels itself because your friends are going to come in and are going to see this cool thing. And then you're going to start a conversation about, well, this wood came from. So, yeah, the story is really, really important to me. So when you say you write the story, then what, what happens with that? Do it you goes to the client. It okay. goes to the client with the piece. It would be interesting if you could, I don't know how you would be able to do this, but I'm sure there's a way to do it. It'd be interesting if you could get like a little, you know, collaborate with someone that has a little small um, like CNC machine, right. Or the little engraving things, right. Where you yeah. can like burn, you could send maybe a little paragraph of like this table was inspired by, and the wood came from here, this location on this date. And then that little plaque gets attached somewhere to every piece. So that little let that little story yeah. becomes yeah. part of the piece. I think that would be really interesting. Then, I like that idea. I've, I've, when I sign my work now, I do, if I know where the wood came from, yeah. um, I have been adding, you know, whether it be Lake Missouri or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So well, I like the idea. Cool. So, okay. So that's sort of, so it starts from literally from the tree. From a tree. And, I love to and, start with the tree. Yeah. And then, so then I'm just trying to, that feels, feels so intimidating to me, right? I, I built kitchen cabinets for 25 years. And so for me, like the materials were all, you know, even and straight oh, and, yeah, and, no. <laughs> you know, and the design comes in the color and the functionality and how I'm putting it together and, and how I'm taking something that's super ugly and then making the kitchen look pretty, right? It's this whole overall thing, right? How I'm just trying to even imagine how you would start with the tree, a whole tree, and then design wise, try to figure out like how you're actually cutting it up, parsing it up. And then you're, but then you also have to be thinking through like the design and then your shapes are not straight. No, not at all. So how do you, how so, do you even do that part? Yes. Walk us through that part. So let's say real life, um, <clears throat> I'm making a bench out of, <coughs> excuse me. Um, a walnut tree that came down off of a client's property. So I had it milled. I sent it to a low temperature kiln um, so that I could have usable lumber in like six months, but still a moisture content where I could steam bend it because I do a lot of steam bending. So it came to pick out the planks for the top. So I go out to my drying shed and I pull all of the planks out and I, I'm looking at them. I'm looking at the grain. I'm looking at knots. I'm looking at defects and I'm, I'm starting, you know, my mental cut list on this raw, rough timber outside. And then once I sort of have an idea of, okay, these pieces can be for the top, this piece can be for a steam bent stretcher, these pieces will be the legs, um, then I'll bring it in and I'll start milling it to rough thicknesses. So I've got you know, an eight inch joiner, I've got a 20 inch planer. So I can, I, I'm always starting from rough timber. I don't ever buy S4S lumber. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess just because I have all of the equipment to start upstream 
And because I am just a little bit of a control freak, um, <laughs> I can choose the exact part of that plank that I want to use. And what I also love is that an entire project is made out of that tree. So I know all of the timber is going to match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So aesthetically, I don't have to worry, you know, where did this piece of walnut come versus that piece of walnut? I'm using walnut from the same tree. Right, right. So you're much, and there's natural variation of color within that, but it's still much less yep. than if you exactly. pick from two different, you know, one's much blacker, one's grayer, one's, you know, lighter, whatever. Yeah, um, and but like all the legs come from a plank, right? right. So, yeah. So how, okay, so that then how do you, um, I I see how you're sort of visualizing and thinking through how you're going to piece out them from the blank, but then how are you thinking through the design part? Are you sort of already sort of, you know, rough sketching on a pad of like, well, I think the back should be, could be curved like this or, because it seems to me that it would be hard to visualize out of the blank some of the curves right 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 like you're having to think through like to make sure your lengths are long enough and you're and like so you must be doing some preliminary ideas in your head right that you're yeah absolutely so you have a rough idea of what you want it the finished piece to look like and are you are you taking those sketches and sort of running them by the client so that you know ahead of a little bit ahead of time before you start cutting yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I'm out at my woodshed, then I've already gone through my whole ideation process. So I mm, okay. I sketch. Um, I don't draw very well. I sketch on tracing paper. Um, so it doesn't feel too precious. Um, <laughs> and I I love that. I'm not I'm not a very good sketcher either. I'm much better at building, but I can't draw for crap. Like yeah, my kitchen yeah. drawings look horrible. <laughs> But so for me, and when I teach design, I tell people, don't build your first idea. Your first idea is just a jumping off point. It's not going to be your best idea. So I sketch and I do quarter size models and I give myself two days to design. And so my first ideation pass just with the sketches, if I don't come up with 20 or 25 ideas in variation, then I'm not doing my job. And so like, you know, a client said, oh, I want a bench. It's like, okay, I don't do rectangles, but even though I don't, I know I'm not going to design a rectangle bench seat, I draw that rectangular bench seat in my sketchbook. And from there, it's like, okay, well, that's pretty damn boring. What is not so boring? It's like, okay, how about an oval? Okay, that's not quite as boring as a rectangle. (laughs) How about a trapezoid? How about if the whole thing curves? Okay, so it's this evolution of what if, what if, what if that gets me to that kick-ass bench seat that is five nested tapered curves. Like, I don't just come up with that idea. Ah. That idea is a a progression from a very boring Mm. rectangle, um, rectangular format. So, okay, now I've ideated the bench seat. Now let's go back through that whole same format for the legs, that whole same format for the stretchers. Um, And so that's, you know, so once I finally get through all that ideation and quarter scale models, because I think much better in 3D, especially with these curved forms, then I'll, I'll sketch something out. And I have a hack for that because like I mentioned, I cannot draw. Um, And so I'll present the client two, maybe three sketches, and they'll choose one of those things, but they're all something I would love to pursue. Um, mm. 
So then once I have the client's approval, that's when I'm out at my drying shed starting to pick out timber. Got it. So you already have an idea of like, okay, I need this, this blank, this piece needs to be quite long because I'm going to end up having to do this angle or something like that. So you, yeah. Okay. So you've already done that before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Got my approval. I've got my cut list. And so now I'm out sort of aesthetically um, Mm -hmm. evaluating my timber. Yeah. I love that. I think that'll be so helpful for, you know, new furniture makers that, because I wouldn't have thought about that, but it kind of lets your brain kind of catch up. Like you start with the sort of easy thing that your brain recognizes, right? The rectangle. And then you just sort of let your brain be more relaxed and more creative and more creative and more creative, right? You just keep, you just keep it open. I love that. Instead of like a blank page where you're like, design the best thing you've ever designed right now. Yeah, that's <laughs> so intimidating. Yes, versus this is like, we know what a rectangle is. Okay, let's start there. And now let's just push the edges a little here, a little there. Like, I feel like I could maybe come up with something using you that of, technique. <laughs> you iterate yourself to that really killer idea. It just yeah. doesn't just pop out of your head. And when I design, I try to design for the unexpected. Right. Right. Okay. That's what I was, I was going to say, I bet like every once in a while, like you kind of like surprise yourself. Right. And you're like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Right. you like, just came up with something and you're like, that would be so cool. Right. Like I imagine those moments like happen to you and you're like, that's the thing I want to do right there. It's like, Whoa, that's it. Oh, if I could pull that off. Right. Um, so Okay, so let's go back to the little quarter size models. I my family knows I love anything miniature. This is like a little <laughs> insider thing for anybody listening. I love miniature mock-ups of everything. Um, so I, I'm fascinated by this concept of doing quarter size models. So how do you do that? Like what are you working out of? Like cardboard, little pieces of wood? Like what are what are you doing? Does it look like like doll furniture? Like what's it sort of looks like doll furniture. So I model out of whatever material is appropriate. Um, so if I'm designing a tabletop that's an inch thick, okay, a quarter of that is a quarter inch. So quarter okay. inch MDF ends up being one of oh. my frequently used modeling materials. Um, if I'm doing like a cabinet, um, I might use cardboard to mock up, say, a curved front. Um, but MDF quite frequently ends up being the material that I model out of Okay, because you can shape it quickly um, and cut curves. Um, If I'm doing a box or a vessel, then I'm going to model full scale because it's such a small object. And one of my favorite modeling materials for that type of work is actually rigid foam insulation. Hmm. Um, Because you can get it in anywhere from half inch to three inches thick, and you can cut it on the table saw or bandsaw. I can shape it with my rasp, and I can start getting a feel for the 3D volume of this smaller object that I'm creating. But so by the time the client gets a piece, they're getting the second or third iteration of it because I've modeled it. I may have done a full-size mock-up, anything having to do with seating. Um, a chair or a bench, I'm going to mock that baby up full size. It, I need to make sure it's structural. I need to make sure that I'm still happy with the form. I need to make sure that all of the elements are actually big enough to get a joint in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a casual pursuit at all. And I yeah. think when people come to my shop, they're most fascinated by the things I have to make to make the thing that I'm making. 
mm-hmm. you know what I mean? By the, like the jigs and the fixtures and everything that I have to create to hold these odd non-square and curves. And yeah, yeah. I, you have a really interesting, um, I'll, I'll link to it on your Instagram, but I, I was impressed by your clamp. I mean, we obviously use a lot of clamps in a kitchen shop, right? Making doors and cabinets. There's tons of clamps, yep, but yep. your use of clamps, I was like, that's incredible. <laughs> like, the way you use clamps on curves, I was like, that's, that's amazing. Like it was like clamp art basically is what <laughs> that uses clamps to me. I was like, that's clamp art. Like that's, that's incredible. Um, oh, you're, you are a geek after my own heart to know <laughs> art. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I was like, and, and, and what's so funny is like, when you see the way you're using them, I, they look so obvious, right? Such obvious common sense, but yet I would have never come up with any of those combinations, <laughs> right? So it's, it's very um, counterintuitive. It looks like, oh, anybody would have done that. But then you think, no, I, I would have never thought of doing it like that. So I, I just think it's really clever, your use of clamps. Well, um, <laughs> um, so how long, how many times have you had to sort of come up with a curve or an element where you're like, I'm not sure how I'm going to hold this or, and how am I going to get the router on this? And how am I going to do this? Right. Um, and then like, have you ever gotten to a point where you're sort of like, you can't figure out the jig to make the thing and you just sort of have to just leave the shop for a while and just be like, Oh, I'll come back to it tomorrow or the next day. Where Absolutely. Like, yeah. Okay. So, um, I never know how to make the thing I've just designed. So to me, when I'm designing a piece, I never think about, oh, I don't know how to do a curved cabinet door, so I'm not going to design a cabinet with a curved door. I never think about the build while I'm designing. I'm purely after form, something beautiful. And then the job is figuring out the build. And it took me a long time to get comfortable in that I don't know what the hell I'm doing space. Um, But I'm... I have enough confidence in myself now that I can figure it out. But there are times when I have to set something aside. It's like, I don't want to force a decision, like an aesthetic choice or maybe a jig that's not so great. So I'll set a project aside. And I usually have multiple things going on in my shop. So I'll set that thing aside. My brain never stops, like constantly churning in the background. And while I'm working on this other thing, all of a sudden like, oh, I can do that for that jig. And then I'll finish, you know, my second project and go back to my first project. So I often set projects aside while I'm trying to figure it out. In fact, my Penelope Cruz chair, I set that thing aside for an entire year. Wow. And I learned enough in that year to come back to it's like, okay, I still don't know what I'm doing, but now I know I can figure it out. So, yeah, Yeah. I'm often, my design is sometimes beyond (laughs) my abilities at the time. Yeah. 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 But I, but I love that because (laughs) that's part of why you love it is the challenge and you're always reaching for the next skill, right? You're always pushing yourself inherently without criticizing yourself, right? You're not really, you're not internalizing that, that you don't know how to do it. You're just like, well, I'll figure it out. Right. And I love that because it gives you so much freedom in your work. And it sounds like, it sounds like your work is very joyful to you and is really bringing you a lot of satisfaction at every step, not just the completion. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, 
this has been delightful. <laughs> I've loved getting to know you and love and loved, um, you know, learning a little bit more about what goes into each of these pieces. They're all really, really interesting and beautiful. Obviously you have a, a lovely design aesthetic and, um, and good implementation of making it get done. Um, and uh, what's like, what are you looking forward to next year? What have you kind of got on the horizon? Any really interesting pieces or, you know, just something you're looking forward to? Cause it's been a hell of a year. It has been a hell of a year. Um, so I'm an introvert and I'm kind of happy working in my shop, mm -hmm. but even this has been hard on me. So mm -hmm. I am looking forward to being able to get out there in the world again next year, maybe teach yeah. a couple of classes, interact with people. Um, yeah. Nice. Yeah. And so where you mentioned teaching, like where can students find you? Where do you like teaching? So we can reference that. Um, uh, Florida School of Woodwork has been okay. um, a place where I've been doing a lot of work lately. Okay. So they're in Tampa. And nice. I've been doing at some online classes also for that same school. Nice. Okay. So we'll link to that. So if there's any ladies out there, gentlemen, that want to learn from you about um, building these gorgeous little vessels, we'll call them beautiful works of art that are still functional. Um, I think that's great. And I can't wait to take a class from you myself. I've, I would love to learn something new in woodworking and I don't have any experience in this. So I feel like uh, this would be really fun and um, creative and, and let me be very artistic in a totally different way. So that would be a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And um, thanks for being on the show and we will link so people can follow you. Thank you so much. listening to remodel your life i sure have enjoyed being with you today and if you really like our show we'd love it if you would subscribe through itunes you can always send us feedback through email at camille at remodelyourlifepodcast.com and i'll see you next week thank you for listening to the remodel your life podcast this episode has ended, but your remodeling journey can continue. Head over to RemodelYourLifePodcast.com to access all the resources, tools, and links mentioned in this episode. Until next time, get your hands dirty and create the life you want from the foundation up. And thanks again to Blue Apron. I just love cooking with them and so appreciate their support of my show. Okay.